Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to The Kyle Serafin Show for Monday, April 17th. Today is going to be a long-form interview, and we're letting it out just a little bit later because we wanted to record it on the actual day of. We're going to start your week off with a message of hope. We're talking to Amy Nelson. Amy Nelson is a mother. She's a wife. She is an attorney, and she is the founder of The Riveter Company. She's also a former guest of The Kyle Serafin Show, where she gave us probably one of the most emotional stories that I've had uh, on our show so far. Her story is heart-wrenching, and I'm going to encourage you to look at the link below and click through and watch that if you haven't. Uh, you can watch this one first if you want to start with some hope and go back and see why we brought her back um, in, You know, when you have more time, by all means. But Amy is one of those wonderful people that we will continue to keep up because her story is so important. She is in a the battle of her life, really, with her and her husband fighting the American oligarchy of, of Jeff Bezos and Amazon.com and Amazon Web Services. So uh, we're going to bring her on the show right now. I think you're really going to enjoy this update. It's a great way to start our week. And thanks so much for joining us with The Kyle Serafin Show. Hey, folks. So we have Amy Nelson with us, and she has not been on the show for 12 weeks, which I went and looked up first thing this morning to find out. And that feels like it has been an eternity. Has it been an eternity in your household too? It feels like it's been a year, not 12 weeks. It's been a 12-week year. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Definitely. So, so the last time we talked, uh, you left me in, in uh, with tears running down my face. And then I rewatched the show. And then I had tears running down my face again. And my wife was asking me if I was okay, because she doesn't see that happen very often. Uh, and it doesn't happen very often. But there was such an emotional thing. You were sharing the story that uh, if you haven't seen it, folks, the, the link is below. So please click on that. If you have not seen this yet, this update will not mean anything to you if you haven't done that. Um, but we're going to catch up on your case, which has had some significant developments. And finally, some Monday good news. I think this is a great way to kick off a week. Thank God for a little bit of good news. There's been some in our house too. Um, give people the uh, maybe the 90 second or the two minute snapshot of kind of how we got to where we're at, just because I think they're going to need an incentive to run backwards and, and go click on that link if they haven't seen it. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. Um, three years ago, my husband's former employer, Amazon, accused him of a crime. They did not ask him what happened. They accused him of a crime called private sector honest services fraud. They went directly to the FBI, who was a business partner of Amazon's. And my husband was accused of a crime. He became the target of a federal investigation. The government seized all of our bank accounts. When no criminal charges ensued, Amazon then sued my husband in civil court for racketeering, which is a civil way to try to prove a crime. Um, and so for three years, my husband has been fighting all of that on different fronts. Um, we ended the forfeiture action and got our money back with the government. And my husband was headed to trial on May 1st of this year with Amazon. But um, a week and a half ago, the judge in Virginia threw out almost all of Amazon's claims against my husband for lack of evidence, including racketeering, fraud. And the judge said my husband didn't even breach his employment contract, which is what I have always said for three years. Yes. And and so, okay, so people understand they took every penny you guys had. They locked it all up in a process called civil asset forfeiture. Um, we, we covered this previously. You've kind of become an advocate against this. I've seen that you've been tweeting about it. You've been kind of sharing information about it. You're tracking other cases where people are being abused by the government. Kind of run people down how that is used and maybe how they decided the heck they could come after you with it. 
So civil forfeiture is a process whereby federal, state, and local governments can seize your assets, your bank account, your home, your car, based on the suspicion of a crime. Not only do they not have to prove a crime, they don't even have to charge you with a crime. My husband's never been charged with a crime. And it's a really powerful tool. It's one used to put pressure on you to cooperate with a you know criminal investigation, to admit to a criminal accusation. Um, because if you can't afford to feed your kids, let alone pay for a lawyer, I mean, how do you navigate that? Um, it is a tool that is used to fund law enforcement. So at every level, law enforcement is incentivized to seize assets because they everything they keep, they get to use to fund their department. So police department can buy gear with it, um, et cetera. And in this case, Amazon hired a former federal prosecutor to lobby his former colleagues for criminal charges at the DOJ. And that former federal prosecutor was obviously very familiar with the different tools that the Department of Justice could use. And Amazon asked the Department of Justice to seize my family's assets. They came to them and as you had explained to us previously, they pitched a case and advocated for the way that they wanted that to go down. As, as you understand it, is that how things go for, for white collar cases in general in this country? I think sometimes, I think sometimes um, it can be a person that accuses someone. I think in the case of Amazon, it's interesting because Amazon has hired hundreds of former FBI agents and federal prosecutors, um, the Department of Justice, the FBI, the NSA, the CIA are multi-billion dollar business partners of Amazon. And, you know, in this case, as I've seen in public filings, Amazon was able to hire Patrick Stokes at Gibson Dunn, who'd been a prosecutor. And they really just called up the U.S. attorney in the district where they wanted to pitch the crime and were able to meet with prosecutors over 100 times. And that, Kyle, is not normal. Usually what I've heard, and, and maybe you all can confirm this, but... That's more than I've met with a U.S. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, usually, and this makes sense to me, usually if you do want to go report a crime or pitch a crime, and you're lucky enough to get a meeting with prosecutors because you don't always get a meeting, if you get a meeting, then you get one meeting. And then the Department of Justice heads off to investigate independently. And that did not happen here. No. Um, I'm sure we all have an instinct of why that is. What is your instinct for for why that was why they had that access? I mean, I want to think it's something bigger and broader, and I do think their business partnership really matters, but I also think relationships matter deeply. And Amazon has done a beautiful job of hiring former prosecutors and FBI agents. And, you know, they recently hired um, the head of an antitrust division. That makes sense because they want to head off antitrust. Um, and so relationships matter deeply. And if you are able to hire the right people, they can get the right connections for you. Yeah. Makes sense. I also, one, one other thing I want to note too that I've learned is that almost all federal prosecutors leave the government and go into private practice. And when a company as big as Amazon comes and says, can you help us out? And you might someday go into private practice. Amazon would be a fantastic client. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. It, it opens a lot of doors. And and in some ways, that's the same thing that we see some of the top executives doing in the investigative side and the FBI, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, some of these are getting hired off too. They, uh, they spend their last, I don't know, five years, maybe Phil could be more accurate with a number, but it's something to that effect where they're basically just lobbying for a private sector gig because they're not going to live on their federal pension. 
which is actually a pretty good gig. The pretty good. But that's <laughs> not it. Once you get to that level, it's uh, it's all about stacking paper up, I guess. And they just want to keep doing this thing. So you see this sort of happening. Um, do you get the instant that these are, okay, so this is relationship-based, but are these the best of the best when it comes to this sort of uh, work? Or is it just something they have access? I think there's just a lot of access. I also think one thing I have found in this case that is, I think, really dangerous is that when a company has an agenda, they can go and provide selective evidence. And I don't know if the people on the other side, the government, can know if what they're being told is right or wrong. I'll give you an example. Amazon has said for three years that my husband violated their code of conduct, their company code of conduct, and that that should be the basis for a civil lawsuit and criminal charges. They said my husband had a conflict of interest. And they said for years in multiple filings that their code of conduct prohibited conflicts of interest, required employees to log conflicts of interest. Their code of conduct is just a policy guide. And I found a case, two cases, in, where Amazon had argued to federal judges that employees could not sue Amazon breaking the code of conduct because it required nothing, made no promises, could be the basis of a civil lawsuit. And so Amazon was trying to put my husband in prison over it, but had told other federal judges it didn't mean anything. How does that hold up for sort of precedent when it comes to looking at a case like your husband's? Uh, can can they say, well, these are different circumstances because the employer is, you know, it's the employer's code of conduct or does it have to work both ways? It has to work both ways. And the judge in Virginia in the civil case, you know, said that in his order dismissing most of Amazon's allegations that Amazon was prohibited from arguing that their code of conduct could be the basis of a lawsuit because you can't argue one way in one case and one way in another. It doesn't make any sense. It's almost like there's a, a private sector uh, sort of honest argument fraud going on there. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I think I would ask who is the criminal here? And I don't think it was anybody Amazon accused. No, I think that our listeners will probably think the same thing. Um, Let's let's kind of get into the details as and and just so people know, Amy has told me there's some things off limits that she can't talk about. So if we're skirting around certain topics, it's not because we don't want to ask the questions. It's because she's got some obligations because this is not over yet for your family, although it is in a, a far better place than we left it 12 weeks ago. It is. What did the fight look like? First of all, how long were you arguing in front of this judge in Virginia? And, you know, what sort of work was going on in your end? I, I feel like you have been basically tirelessly pushing this, you you have attorneys, but you're doing a lot of the legwork, or at least you're certainly doing a lot of the uh, the lifting on your own, because you've taken this on as like a personal affront, <laughs> as, as you should, when, when someone comes after your family. And also, I am a lawyer, so I don't practice anymore, but I was a litiga litigator for a decade. Um, so it's an interesting question, how long has this been before the judge? Because Amazon filed their civil lawsuit on April 27th, 2020, but it went before. One more time? That was April, April 27th. April 27th, 2020. So three years now. Three years. Almost and to the day. Yes. Um, and they, the initial judge was a man in the Eastern District of Virginia named Liam O'Grady, who was a former federal prosecutor, who Amazon's lawyer, Patrick Stokes, had argued before for years when he was a federal prosecutor. So they knew each other very, very well. And he was the judge and... You know, Amazon first filed their lawsuit under seal in secret. We didn't know it existed. And they said that they had been defrauded out of over $50 million 
To fast forward to today, the judge said Amazon showed evidence of zero dollars of harm. But anyway, based on all of that, the judge, you know, issued injunctions requiring defendants to set aside millions of dollars. Um, it was really dramatic. But in um, 2021, the Wall Street Journal published a news article about judges and financial conflicts of interest. And I read that article and I went and found the source data. I went and found where they'd gotten all the judicial disclosures. And I started digging around and I saw that Judge Liam O'Grady owned Amazon stock as of 2018. And um, there wasn't 2019 or 2020 data, but I figured he probably didn't sell it. You know, Amazon was on the rise for a long time. Yeah, was this was this a significant amount enough to make tens, um... tens of thousands of dollars, which I think is significant for most Americans. Sure. <laughs> um, and um, so I reached out on Twitter to the journalist from the Wall Street Journal, and I tell the story to tell people you have power. The internet gave us agency to reach out to people, to meet people, and to ask questions. I didn't know the journalist, and I'm just a person on Twitter. And I reached out, and I told him my story, and he went to work and it turned out that the judge did still own Amazon stock. And when confronted with that, he refused to recuse himself from the case, which I think is very stunning that a judge would fight to stay on a case. What interest does he have? Um, but we, my husband's lawyers took it to court, moved um, for him to recuse himself. And eventually he did. How long did it take from the time that you discovered that information until the time the judge actually finally backed away? Four months, four months. And what were you thinking during that time out of curiosity? Because um, that had to first, that had to be really galling to find the information out. But then when someone digs in, it makes you feel like you're on the right track. I, I, I've been in that world where like the minute somebody does something and you're like, okay, well, you just tell them and then they'll go away. And then they go, they dig in and you go, oh, oh, Why? this is going to be a fight. This, you know, this, this is an interesting turn of events, but. I mean, it was, so all of this is frightening, right? The Department of Justice is very powerful and the federal judiciary is very powerful and I am just a person. And so, you know, it feels, it feels a frightening. Person at but, that. but it feels frightening, but I, but there's a judicial code of conduct that they are required to follow. And it felt like the right thing to do. And um, the hard thing is when you move to recuse a judge, it's the judge that hears your argument and decides. So if you lose, I don't think that judge is going to be very happy with you. <laughs> so it's a risk. Yeah, it's the old uh, take a shot at the king, you better not miss sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And yeah. judges do act that way in their courtrooms. Like they're the kind of the the lord of that small fiefdom. It's, um, yeah, that's that's such a wild thing to, to push back on too, because what interest would anyone have unless there was some other, I mean, there's, we can only assume that there's something nefarious on there. Now, uh, you say you're just little old me and, and you're out there on the internet reaching out to people. You're you're getting journalists who that theoretically used to be their job. They used to hold the powerful accountable. Uh, in, in our lifetimes, you and I have seen that sort of change dramatically. Um, but the other thing is, is that you're tenacious in a way that most people roll over. Most people in your husband's situation mm -hmm. out. They don't fight this at all. So this is the the DOJ has bandwidth to handle people like you because usually they're just bullying people is kind of what we've talked about previously. Yeah, I mean, I think the Department of Justice that I've learned, they have a certain set of tools that they can use to encourage people to agree with their allegations. That includes civil forfeiture. Um, it includes 
threatening additional charges. It includes, um, you know, we had an FBI search warrant. Um, you know, all these different they threatened to People charge. Can all the details of that, which are yeah, and it's great. There's a great um, scholar named Clark Neely, who writes a lot about coercive plea bargaining. He's at the Cato Institute. But 98% of people who are accused of a federal crime plead guilty. It's almost an impossible system to navigate. Is that across uh, all all crimes? Yes. 98%. It, it totally makes sense, too, though, because people, well, historically speaking, the, the DOJ was very judicious in what they chose. Yes. Right? So mm -hmm. that's the other piece of it. They only pick the slam dunks because that's the way the system is set up. They're incentivized to, to do something to, to get people through it. So it's a lot more efficient. And if you only bring really strong cases, then people just, they get crushed. So they're not gonna play ball. Like they, they immediately just go, okay, what do you want from me? How can I get this thing down from the six counts you have down to the three that I'm willing right. to serve? Right, but I, I, and I think we're in a different scenario now where you know we have mass incarceration in America, more and more people are accused of crimes. And so maybe there's not the same rigor that was applied um, but my husband, you know, my husband knew what he had done. He knew what he had not done and he was not going to plead guilty to something he did not do. It's not in his constitution to do that. Mm -hmm. And moreover, you know, my husband is not Amazon's main target. Amazon's main target was a real estate developer. And we talk all about it in, in our last podcast, right. but you know, the government and, and Amazon's crime would necessitate my husband to say something untrue about other people. And my husband would never do that. That's the that's the element of the honest uh, the private sector honest services fraud. The allegation is that my husband took kickbacks from the real estate developer um, in order to steer Amazon deals to the developer. So if my husband was going to quit and give in, he would be required to implicate someone else in a crime that they didn't commit, and he, he's not capable of doing that. Sure. And then the, the second piece of it is, is obviously it destroys any sort of credibility that he has in the real estate developer world, which is his livelihood. So that's a that's a death sentence for his current line of work. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it's all trust and, and honesty and, and building yeah. relationships. Yeah. And also, you know, we have four little girls and I think it was important for us and still is to show them that you fight for what's right. I mean, I've told them what's right always doesn't win, but you have to do it anyway. We talked about that a little bit yesterday when we were setting this up. Um, one of the hardest lessons to probably bring to your youngest is three. Your oldest is how old? Eight. Eight. So four little girls between three and eight. And you're explaining to them how the world is full of injustice. How do you <laughs> approach that as a mom? How do you approach that as somebody who you know sees girls going out there and maybe having their own businesses one day, the same way that you're working in, knowing that there's a lot of unfairness. And that doesn't mean that we don't keep pushing, though. You know, my husband, I don't know if he heard this or he made it up, but it's a really great quote. And it's something that we try to frame things with for the girls. Um, you can't, I forget how it goes, but it's something like, you can't just say, there's no way the lion would eat me because I wouldn't eat the lion, right? There are lions in the world. And no matter who you are and what you believe is right and wrong and how you live in your life, there are going to be lions that are still going to try to eat you. And so you can really only control how you present in the world and how you show up and what you do. Um, and just because other people do bad things or wrong things doesn't mean you do bad things or wrong things. And it doesn't mean that you change your morals. And um, I try to do it, but it's interesting how this comes up in my everyday. You know, my um, seven-year-old has learned to read and we were driving by a bank the other day. And she said, what's that? The bank's name is Fifth Third. And I said, oh, it's a bank. 
And she goes, and that's where you keep money, right? And I was like, yes. And she goes, because it's safe there, right? Eek. And I mean, like for 42 years, I would have said, absolutely, yes, it's safe in the bank, but it's not. And it's this, but I don't, you know, but I said to her, I was like, it's mostly safe there, but nothing in the world is entirely safe. Right. And that's how I handled it today. And then when she grows up and when we tell her the whole story, she'll understand what I mean. But I don't want her to have blind faith in something that I had blind, blind faith in for 40 years. Like, I think we all need to question our government, our country. It's not to say it's bad. It's not to say there isn't hope. But I think I very blindly accepted a lot of things that I shouldn't have. And I want to encourage them to grow up questioning and understanding. Yeah. What do you, what do you attribute the the blind faith to? Is that a generational thing? Or is that just a circumstantial thing? Because I think a lot of people have that and a lot of people still have that. That's not a thing that, and, and maybe as you uh, approach other people, because you've got to approach people that still have that faith, I have to imagine. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't know. I think I just, I love, I love America. I love what we were. Um, I, know that a lot of other countries would love to have a democracy where they got to vote and choose their elected officials. Um, so I thought that we were really lucky. And I think I always thought that even if we were imperfect, because I've always thought we were imperfect, there was hope and good actors and a desire to be more perfect. I don't necessarily believe that anymore. Yeah, that's one of the ugliest things about all this stuff is disillusionment. I was on a Twitter space last night where we talked about that. And it was essentially, it's like, um, you know, you're only able to be betrayed by things that you actually trust or people that you actually trust or institutions or organizations. Like nobody can betray you if you didn't trust them. You just assume that they were scum to begin with, but that's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with somebody that you're like, you have that feeling that they're going to do the right thing because you would do the right thing. It's the right. lion argument, right? And yeah. it's so good. It's so simple. I'm probably going to take this back to my girls too. Who are <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah. Them. But, it, it but it's it's really helpful. You cannot project your what you would do in the world uh, to another actor because some of them come from a nefarious place. Um, it's also really interesting because you just said, you know, I love America. I, you know, appreciate our system and all the things that, that go along with it. And that used to be a very common liberal progressive thing. You you historically have been on that that side of things. You still have some feelings that way. You're obviously, even if you're in the center, you're on kind of left of center of... of yeah. uh, the political discussion, I think, um, yeah. that's, uh, do you feel like your, your colleagues, the, the friends of yours that sort of don't understand what you're doing, but, uh, used to be on your team, do, do they understand that sort of sense? Have they moved from it and left you behind or where did that happen? Um, you know, I think this has been an interesting experience. So Kyle, I was an Obama fundraiser. I spent a lot of my life, like very actively working for democratic politicians and, um, when this all started, I was silent for a year and didn't talk about it. This has been three years, right? So for a year, I didn't say anything to anyone. And then when I started to tell our story, I started reaching out to journalists because I wanted journalists to tell our story. And the quote, mainstream media will not speak to me. And this, or believe me, um, Amazon called me a conspiracy theorist, which is very easy to do. Um, because I've been telling our story on social media and it's interesting, like, am I, do they think the federal judge in Virginia who dismissed their case is a conspiracy theorist? Um, but you know, I've been dismissed by a lot of friends, colleagues, people on the left for talking to people that are on a different political spectrum than I am for talking to Glenn Beck, for talking to Tucker Carlson, 
But what I would say about Glenn Beck and Tucker Carlson is A, just because I go on someone's show doesn't mean I agree with everything that they say. B, what I'm talking about, civil forfeiture and the injustice of the justice system primarily impacts folks who are progressive and Democrat, right? Like mass incarceration impacts folks of color, low-income folks, immigrants. And so anything I say on, to people that will hear it on the other side of the political spectrum, that is so powerful. And I feel that people on the left should be applauding me for going out and, and talking about this. You know, civil forfeiture should be abolished and it primarily impacts people that do not look like me. And so, you know, like, why wouldn't we want me out there? And then the third thing I'll say is like, you know, listen, what I have found to be very true in today's journalism is that folks who don't identify as progressive or, you know, on the left are far more curious about hearing a story and digging in and hearing the facts, even if it's complicated, even if it's messy. Whereas the more mainstream media just wants a simple reductive story and they don't want to piss anyone off. It's particularly people in power and Amazon has a lot of power. I'm going to dig into that further. You, you're using a, a term mass incarceration. I want you to give me your definition of it. I know that you're not using it lightly. This is something that you, um, I don't know if we agree on it, but it doesn't make yeah. a difference. I, I just, I want to know kind of what you see and then why you see it that way. Uh, yeah. If you don't mind kind of laying it yeah, out. I mean, I think so America puts a higher percentage of its citizens in prison and jail than any other country in the world. Mm -hmm. More this than is not a race thing. This is not, do you well, see it as a class thing maybe? So I think, so it started in this, I'm not, I'm not like a historian and, I'm, and I don't pretend to have know this incredibly well, but what I do know is that our incarceration rate started spiking in the seventies and eighties with the war on drugs. And okay. I also do know that there's recordings of Nixon talking to his um, attorney general Ehrlichman about creating drug laws and targeting people. Um, and the drug laws did a great job of leading to mass incarceration. And I think drugs are bad. And I think the drug war has failed. And I think we should be dealing with it in a different way. So I, I just think. I, I probably agree with you on all those things. I, so especially having seen that, you know, when you create a quote unquote war on something, we have a war on poverty. We can't spend our way out of that. If we had used that money for something else, it probably yeah. would be useful now. Or if we'd use it in a different way. Uh, as opposed to just sort of throwing it at people and giving them subsistence as opposed to thriving, right? Yeah. And mass incarceration, it benefits companies. <laughs> like that's who it benefits, right? Like that. It... Are we talking about because of prison labor? Or is there another reason why? Um, because of the services prisons eat up, right? Um, so they eat a lot of services because they, there are millions of people who go through that system. So food and lodging and, you know, we, we pay for it. You, Kyle and I, we And pay there's for private it. prisons, which are uh, not cheap. And that's where people, I've met some really, really wonderful people that used to work for Bureau of Prisons, got really, really good at running prisons efficiently, and then took over private sector ones because they're good at it and they're profitable at it. And they make it the most efficient and they know how to run prisons. Yeah. But yeah, there's, a, there's definitely a lot of money involved in those contracts because then the city or the, the county or yeah. a state come in and pay it. So, okay, fair enough. I think the, um, I think the, the, conservative version of of mass incarceration the word mass incarceration to me feels like indiscriminate incarceration it's not quite what you're saying you're no, saying the percentage has increased at a high level yeah i mean to define the term because i because i've heard people use it differently 
Okay. Like they're scooping black people up off the streets in Chicago and throwing them in jail. And it's like, oh, I don't think you understand how the justice system works. But that yeah. doesn't mean that they're not over prosecuting certain things or that we are not wasting our resources, which is probably a bigger piece of it. Yeah. Things that we can't win. We can't stop the flow of drugs in this country because because there's a demand for drugs. So they're going to be met. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. And I just think, you know, and I think that like where we are now with fentanyl and the opioid crisis, which was the opioid crisis was created by big pharma. Mm -hmm. Um but like we should try to help people right we should we should try to help people and and make them better so they can be productive members of society i look at it largely from like american greatness and our economy and like how do we how do we become a better country how do we serve our kids better and we don't serve our kids better by letting their parents be drug addicts and be in prison we serve our kids better by trying to help people you know and so i just wish we did that and i think it would be better economically too this is this is why historically this country was able to thrive because there may be two different perspectives. Some people said, ah, throw the book at them and you know lock them up forever. And somebody else said, but yes, but also rehabilitate them and make them better. And that was the difference between left and right, right? It was it was sort of a compassionate version, the sort of so-called liberal version of it, and then the conservative, maybe more stodgy, more, more uh kind of grouchy. That's what I grew up with. Yeah. <laughs> and, and everybody kind of agreed that like the goal was is that we'd have less crime and more people thriving. And so if you had to throw the book at people, it was so that other people didn't yeah. go into the same thing. That's not necessarily what's going on. So we're we're living in this totally parallel world. Um, I don't I don't want to belabor that too much. That wasn't the, the world we came in to discuss. But what I do want to talk about is when you keep saying the words mainstream media, do you have any outlets in particular that you want to uh, share? Kind of Because I think other people are going to be in situations. This is why I bring this up. There are yeah. other people who are going to find themselves in situations. And it doesn't matter whether they, you know, there was a guy we had on, um, Alfredo Luna. He was raided by the FBI over state charges. They used an FBI SWAT team to come into his home and to take his firearms. He's a former police officer and was working on getting his job back when it happened. And his department came and shut him down. And so there are people who go like, I've got a story. My story is insane. And your story is insane. Um, and, and you've, let's call it, mostly successfully navigated through this with a lot of heartbreak along the way. Uh, and you found what doesn't work, but you've also found something that does work. So I'm curious if you can kind of say like, what, what were the dead ends and how did that, you know, how did you know they were a dead end? How'd you get shut down on them? Well, a lot of times people just won't email me back at all. <laughs> um, and, um, and these are some journalists I know, you know, I, um, I, as you know, I'm an entrepreneur and my company, the Riveter, I did get a lot of press, you know, before the pandemic. And, um, and so I did know some journalists, um, but, you know, in journalists I knew just wouldn't email me back or um, one conversation and there was no follow-up. Um, I've been asked to be on shows and just kind of ghosted. Um, and so I think, um, you know, when I look, I think of like CNN, MSNBC, you know, like the, we've never been on a, a network, NBC's, CBS, ABC, we've never been on any of the network news shows, but, but, um, and, and it's, you know, it's, that's hard, but at the same time, I think one thing I realized at a certain point is that you can also tell your own story. And you know, I was very reluctant, um, to go on TikTok because I had, I had a following on Instagram of 25,000, you know, community on Instagram that I'd grown over years. And everyone's like, you need to, you need to go on TikTok. You need to go on TikTok. And I'm like, oh, I can't. I can't do this. And TikTok is frightening. Um, but then I just tried, decided why to- Why is that? Do you, do you mind saying why? I'm I'm curious what the- Well, first of all, everyone kept telling me the Chinese were stealing our data. Um, yeah. 
which like maybe they are, but so is Mark Zuckerberg. Like at the end of the day, you know, like it's like, I don't like if you're on the internet, you're on the internet. Um, well, and, there, there's certain people that maybe shouldn't be doing that. Like if you work in the intelligence community and you're yeah. my former boss, maybe you shouldn't be doing TikTok videos because you're in charge of like a federal agency that investigates the Chinese. But if you're a lady who lives in America who wants to share a message yeah. and the Chinese know what you're about, I don't yeah. know. And, um, but so, and I also just, I mean, I felt like everyone on TikTok was 22 years old and putting makeup on, on the camera or something. Um, and so it just felt I like- I also feel this way. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems true to me from the outside. Same thing with Instagram for me. I don't get that either. It seems like well, there's a lot of women just staring at their own bodies. And yeah. I don't- and, and, there, and there, you know, there is a lot of that on social media, but TikTok is also really interesting because Instagram is a closed world where you choose who to follow and who to see. Um, but on TikTok, there's an algorithm that recommends videos and people to you. So TikTok listens to what you're watching, watches what you're watching, and then says, you might like to hear this person's story or this person's story and serves it up to you. Okay. And so information travels incredibly quickly and there's a lot of power to it. If you look at East Palestine in Ohio, where the train derailed, um, the media wasn't covering it and TikTokers went to work. And they were filming the water and they were filming, you know, what was happening and it, it grew and it grew and it grew. And then the media had to pay attention to it. And I think that's very interesting. And if you look at um, the violent revolution in 2011 in the Middle East, um, Tunisia, et cetera, Twitter helped that. Right. Twitter allowed these young, uh, young people who wanted their country to change to gather because they could connect. And I think and that's when they had Periscope working, too. Does that sound correct? Yeah, I wasn't yeah. on Twitter back then, but that was when they could actually quick, quickly live stream, throw a quick video up, and then people could see it immediately. This was predecessor yeah. to TikTok. And so that, I think, is what's happening on TikTok today. And so anyway, on December, this, a few months ago, I just decided to start talking on TikTok. I have over 80,000 followers <laughs> because people are interested in this story. And I think also there's a part of it, you know, a, a journalist said to me the other day, we were texting and I won't say his name, but he had had me on his show. And he was like, to be honest, I just thought Amazon would crush you because how do you beat Amazon? Right. And I think that, you know, a lot of people watching the story are kind of just like, how can you even stand up to this company? This is wild. How are you alive? And yes. uh, yeah. So that's, no. that's exactly it. What is your format when you deliver on TikTok? I, I've never been on it. I uh, have sort of stayed away from it on principle. Um, I'm, I'm not opposed to it anymore as much as I used to be in my old gig, but, um, you know, how are you delivering your message that is so, you know, virally susceptible to people to follow you and, and to, to get it out in a way? So I think, um, so it's all videos and I, I am are very you doing makeup while you're talking. Are you doing your, are you <laughs> no, I'm not, <laughs> no, I did. Well, I did one once where I did my hair. Cause like at the very beginning, cause like that's what all the creators did. And I was like, this is not going to work for me. Um, so I, I just talk, I talk or. Um, there's a thing on TikTok called a green screen where you talk and then you can put documents up behind you mm -hmm. on the video. And what I have found, and I think the reason that my story resonates is that I speak about the facts and I show the facts. And so if you want to accuse me of lying or be a being a conspiracy theorist, that would be fine. But I'm showing you the facts as well as telling them. In the Basically. actual court documents that you're dealing with or in the, the news articles that you're finding, those kind of things? Yep, absolutely. What and does I the engagement look like? Can people respond to it with comments or mm -hmm. how does that? Okay. So they yeah, get people comments. Respond with comments and you know, I have, so a video I did, um, just giving an update about when the, the judge in Virginia threw out six of the seven allegations against my husband. 
I just, I just talked at the camera for three minutes and it has, you know, this is a week ago and it has 1.5 million views and thousands of comments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so many views. That's so wild for a three minute video. You're longer than the YouTube short format and you're just, and that's the other thing. Isn't it amazing? Like people's attention span today is so short that three minutes is actually too much for, and, and I'm guilty of it too. I'm sure you are as well. You look down and you go like, I don't uh, just, you just <laughs> like through something. My wife will show me stuff and it's like, I don't even, I don't want to stand here yeah. for that. 15 yeah. seconds into 60 seconds and I'm gone. It, I know. it is one minute of my life. Is it that important? No. Could I <laughs> And she thought it was interesting enough to show it to me. Could I stand there? I could, but like, <laughs> we're, we're all well, programmed to just, if we're not getting what we want right now from this thing. Moving on. Yeah. And one thing that's interesting too about TikTok has made me realize, I think the Amazon PR machine is behind a lot of who I've been allowed to talk to and who I haven't been allowed to talk to, because I will tell you this, Amazon who made all these accusations and who claimed they wanted a big federal trial and a big criminal trial, sent a letter to my husband's attorneys uh, about six weeks ago, demanding that I stop my TikTok, saying that they were going to go to the Department of Justice and accuse me of witness tampering for speaking on social media, accuse me of a crime. And then in a federal court filing, they said they were going to seek a gag order against me, which they literally could not do because like, I'm not a litigant in the case and I'm not in the jurisdiction of the court. But like they were mad. I mean, so mad, so angry. Did you do a, a video called Amazon Big Mad? <laughs> no, but maybe I will. That's a good one. Yeah, that's what I don't know. My buddy, whenever something he sees something where people are saying things that are illogical like that, he yeah. uh, he sends me a thing. He goes, "Hey, yeah. you know this thing, Big Mad, ladies, Big Mad, or whatever it is." I I don't know. I like Big Mad. I think it's it's obnoxious and it's childish, which is yeah. maybe why it's funny when it comes to people that are a little bit more cerebral. Mm-hmm. Uh, they threw out six of the seven. Let's mm-hmm. let's dig in. You you threw it out casually. I don't think it was a casual thing for your family. You've said it now again. Let's uh let's kind of just claw into that for a second. First of all, um, how is your family feeling like emotionally from getting that news? And then maybe we talk about how how that came about. I think, you know, it's very validating. It feels very validating to my family, to my husband, and to me. Were you uh, basically Will Ferrell taking the crazy pills, yelling at the end of Zoolander for a little bit there? Were you... Well, it was funny. My husband called me. He was out of town for something related to the civil case. And I was in my minivan with two of my girls. <laughs> and he called me and said, a summary, it's called a summary judgment order. Um, and he goes, uh, they threw out the racketeering on summary judgment. And I just scream. I let out a scream because it's not frequent that you win on summary judgment. Summary judgment means we're going to the judge and saying, before we go to trial, there's not even enough evidence that a jury needs to hear this. There's no issue here. Let's just deal with it before trial. So it's very hard to win because there has to be literally no issue. <laughs> and so and the judge is kind of going out on a limb because they're, they're taking it off the docket. They're, they're saying, yes, this, this doesn't even deserve the time yeah. in my courtroom. Correct. And so, you know, we were hopeful that we would win because we thought we were very right on the law and the facts, but you, you don't know. Um, and so I was shocked. And when my husband told me that I just thought it meant that one claim was thrown out. Um, and then I drove home and I sat down at my laptop and opened up Pacer, which is where you go to get, um, federal filings. I opened it up and I was like, Oh my God, they threw out almost everything. Like, and, and it was this, 
I mean, I've been harping for three years that my husband didn't even breach his employment contract and they're trying to put him in prison. And I've like emailed Jeff Bezos and Andy Jassy. I've emailed all the Amazon guys this. I, I mean, I just, you know, and because why not? You you're can't. relentless. You're relentless on social media too. And it's my favorite. It's just like, you're just throwing rocks at their castle all day long. <laughs> Who cares? Uh, um, and they, the breach of contract claim, the judge just... Like, I feel like maybe he watched my TikToks. I know he didn't, but like, but it was like, you don't you know that said, there's 1.7 million people watching these things. Somebody watched it. Yeah, like you just said everything I said, like it was, you know, and, and the, the injustice of the fact that we had to spend years of our lives to prove that point is hard, but and a lot of money, I imagine too. It was a lot of money. Um, and so that was great. So it's great. But then, you know, when my husband came home, I was talking to him and I'm like, you do not seem happy. Why are you not happy? And he's like, how, how do you not stand here wondering what they're doing in the dark? You know, these guys are malicious. They won't stop. Like, what are they doing? And I think he has a really valid point. I now have a new theory of what Amazon will try to do um, because they're not going to stop yet. They don't want to lose. I think a lot of careers are on the line at Amazon at this point and at their law firm, Gibson Dunn. Um, so, you know, and my husband, yeah. yeah, my husband's like, we're still on the battlefield and he's right, you know, and you, and you can't really. He seems rap. very pragmatic. I only saw him on camera for a few minutes, but he seems like he's a nuts and bolts kind of guy. He's, he looks like a kind of a physical creature too. Like he's just, <laughs> right. I mean, he's kind of a bigger guy. He just looks yeah, like, this is like high school. So I mean, he's a six, four ice hockey and football player. He's a big guy. Okay. So that was my impression. Just not, you know, like the kind of the guys that I was always around just athletes, yeah. people that were not shy from conflict, yeah. but also like, he seems like he's a real serious individual. Is, is he playful too? Is he funny? Or yeah, is this super, super fun? Okay. I mean, this has made him far more serious but he's also like you know he is serious when he needs to get the job done and always has been and yeah. he's like call that flipping the switch in the military yeah. like there's yeah. times to go to work right yeah and he's just like just keep doing the thing you have to do just keep doing it and he's always said to me for three years because you know there have been times where this has been really really devastatingly hard and um you know he always says to me the one thing this won't last forever and i think that's really that means it, it, really thinking about that because in most terrible situations in life, they won't last forever. Someday, this will be just a chapter in the book. It won't feel like the whole book of my life. And so that's a really good thing to give perspective. Um, but we're still in that chapter. <laughs> and I you do think it. Amazon will keep trying to hammer us. I don't think they know how to lose very well. I think you're correct. Uh, one of the things that we used to do in the when I was doing training in the military, a lot of special operations training. I always told kids the, the reason why they quit and I didn't, because I was older than them. I was 10 years older. I said, I've had 10 more years of waking up at the end of really bad days, you know, or going to bed at the end of really bad days and the day ended mm -hmm. and they may not ever see it ending because they don't have the perspective, but you've got, you're in the right spot. As far as your life, you're in kind of the power curve to be able to do this kind of stuff and know, yeah. And you've got a, a you know, your husband out there letting you know that this too will end. Right. I mean, it, yeah. it can't last forever. They can't, they can't even feasibly keep their attention on you forever for all the money they're going to, if they, <laughs> they could, but they won't because it's <laughs> their losses, like no way, there's no way around it. They, they have yeah. to cut the losses on these kind of things. Um, what has the impact been on just, you've been public. Uh, we haven't seen Carl nearly as much. Uh, has he been public at all? Is he allowed to be public? Is that something you guys worked out as a strategy beforehand? Or how, how did it come that you were, yeah. you know, enraged and on TikTok? 
and doing <laughs> 1.7 million views of, of your three minute court synopsis, which is not necessarily like a sexy topic for a lot of people. I know. I'm like, wow, we all have a lot of like, like lawyer, like lawyer wannabes or junior lawyers out here. I think um, there are a lot of those people that actually are like that too. So that's kind yeah. of fun. There's not um, so How did you guys break up these roles. So first my husband has no social media presence, never has. So he calls Facebook you face and thinks that he's like, why would anybody ever do that? Um, but, but, um, what is you face? I don't know. He's just like, this is stupid. What is this? I don't understand. Um, That's so a bold he, guy. Yeah. He, um, is a private person. So didn't have any social media. And there's one thing like when Amazon threatened to accuse me of a crime, they're like, we can only assume that Miss Nelson is acting in concert with her husband. And I'm like, you assume incorrectly. Also, like, I am my own person and I do things on my own, but that's whatever. Um, so but you're married. So that's also like the, the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I know. <laughs> like, do you home. have a wife? Do you know how this works? It's not. It's like, yeah, that's not. No. Um, but, you know, we again, I didn't we didn't speak publicly at all for a year. And I think my husband would have preferred for us not to speak publicly or me to speak publicly but I very strongly believe like you can't fight a giant like Amazon in a conventional way. Um, and we had to tell the story. I was also just so mad at what Amazon was saying for a year because it was so untrue. Like, for example, them saying we suffered $50 million in damages from this criminal when they suffered none. Actually, and the judge said this, they made money off of this alleged fraud. Amazon benefited from it. And the judge Which said is what that. you told us uh, last time we spoke. Yeah, and the judge said it was a lot of money too. It wasn't even like a little bit of money. A lot of money, but anyway. So I just, I just kind of told my husband, "Well, I'm doing this," and just kind of moved on. And he didn't even really, he didn't know what I was doing because he's not on social media. Um, and then I would also say, I am not a litigant, and my husband is. And if you are a litigant and you start speaking out then the other party can try to seek a gag order to shut you up. And it's controversial. I think my husband has a lot to say, and I think he looks forward to saying it. And I think that when the litigation is over, he will. Yeah, fair enough. Has his pos uh, position or perspective changed on what you're doing as this sort of case has evolved over the last three years? Yes. I mean, I think he still does not have any social media accounts, and I think he wishes this wasn't a story, but we didn't make up the story. Amazon did. Um, and I think he sees the power of what social media is um, and, and how important it can be. Yeah, you and I have talked about sort of the uh, the court of public opinion is where a lot of this stuff is tried at this point. And, and yeah. who's to say the judge did not see your TikTok video? I would have to assume that that's a possibility, at least, because because people are curious because they're human beings and they have downtime and they have TikTok and they have Twitter yeah. and they have other things like that. So they can and go we know Amazon is watching every single one because in a federal court filing, like for no reason at all, they cited like 20 of my TikToks. I love Calling that. Me a conspiracy theorist linking to them. I just got <laughs> accused of felonies in my, um, in, for, for my personal podcast, my personal podcast, which actually has been paying money to me and been the only income that I've had since I left the bureau. So it is funny when you see these, these, uh, Goliaths come out there and they're, they're watching all your things. I just say hi to the FBI. And if they're watching this one, um, you guys suck at what you've been doing to Amy too. And, uh, and you're terrible for what you did to Steve and my buddy Garrett <laughs> and also to me. So I don't care. Uh, yeah. oh no, I make, I make TikToks for the lawyers sometimes. I'm like, you have to, and then people, and then everybody gets to be in it on your joke and, yeah. and then they, they can be on your side. Cause you're the good guy in this. Um, one of the things that you mentioned, I don't know if it was on our podcast or if it's something that's been back and forth on, uh, on Twitter that I've seen, but you talk about oligarchies and, uh, the American oligarchy. Do you want to kind of 
give people that uh, reference frame so they can walk around and look at their life that way too? <laughs> yeah. So we always talk about Russian oligarchs who are billionaires who are very close to the state government, who make money from the state government. And we say those are oligarchs and they have inappropriate relationships and they have too much control. Well, and we they're have, like boogeymen. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Um, we have American oligarchs. <laughs> like, I mean, like, by like the basic definition, like if you look at Jeff Bezos and Amazon, I mean, Amazon makes billions and billions of dollars a year from the US government, from us, right? Because Amazon Web Services, which is the cloud computing division of Amazon, which is their profit center, which is where my husband worked, they store the secrets of the Department of Defense, the FBI, NSA, CIA, as I said, and many, many other agencies. Like the government cannot let Amazon fail. The government cannot exist for a day without paying Jeff Bezos. Which seems weird. Because yeah, that's such a crazy thought because what, even 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. It 100% was not the case 10 years ago. And in 2013, it all changed because the CIA awarded Amazon a $600 million contract. And once you start storing your stuff with a cloud server, you're going to keep doing it, right? Like the government should have their own cloud server. The government should store their own secrets. Um, right? It just seems simple. Yeah. They used to have <laughs> I mean, it's like so they used to have things like Iron Mountain, and I'm sure they yeah. still have Iron Mountain. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. There used to be, you know, vaults that were hardened structures that were supposed to withstand nuclear blasts. That was the whole point of the Cold War. We were throwing all this money in. It wasn't that we were throwing money to contractors. Someone built it, obviously. Yeah. They maintained their own stuff. Now they love farming the stuff out, and it's put them in bed with a lot of different companies. I know there's a, a two-way street on that. I mean, obviously, it keeps Amazon going, but it also gives the federal government access to a lot of Amazon records that they wouldn't maybe otherwise share. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it should be a left, this should be a, not a left or a right issue. This should be the American people against, you know, the six richest people in, a, in the world that are trying to screw with all of us and have the ability to do so at the expense of our federal system. A hundred percent. We are on the same side here. I mean, cause this is like, to me, I think about this all the time. Like we are divided by a lot of issues, and we've talked about this, that impact very few people. And I'm not saying they're not important issues, but they, you know, issues that impact fewer people when there are these really big issues that impact all of us and people in charge, you know, and there are people in charge who are leading these things. And we should just really look at this the overall system. I mean, and when, when I think about the oligarchy too, I look at both political parties, Democrats and Republicans. Um, and, you know, when you have an oligarchy and you have these billionaires with so much power, and then you have a system in America with campaign donations, I mean, all politicians, Democrats and Republicans should just put on like their own version of a NASCAR jumpsuit and like show the logos of their top 50 brand sponsors, because yes. that's who they're working for. They're not working for us. That's who they're working for. And like, there's what so many issues we have, jackets. Like, those jackets, yeah. <laughs> are great, right? Like it's a suit coat, but it has yeah. the stone and all the patches. The biggest is like the name sponsor on the back. Yeah. So that when you turn to walk away from the press conference, it's like Pfizer or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, like, it's just ridiculous too, because these companies and these individuals, they just, they give to both parties. Like they have actually no political ideology except like winning and making money. Their political ideology is like, give me more money. And so they give to Democrats and they give to Republicans. And then we're over here fighting about these things that maybe affect like 0.0001% of the population. And that's our entire political dialogue. Like While drag the queen story hours, the, the, the sort of the distractionary devices. Yeah. Like, do we talk about the laser pointer on the ground? Do we talk about that when you know? I, I see a lot of these things as being like a, a someone who's holding a laser pointer and they're sh they're shining on the ground and the cat is pouncing on the laser. Yeah, but you can't ever win because the pointer's ten feet away. Yeah, 
but they're giving you they're giving you something to focus on which has nothing to do with what's going on outside of there and in the meantime you're you know doing whatever you need to do pour the cat food so the cat stays away from you or whatever yeah. but th they're just giving us a laser dot to attack on the floor and it, it's nothing there's nothing there when you get yeah. there yeah it's it's a it's a whole mess and i also just think like speaking about these things too when you think about things like the fbi or the security state you know 20 years ago right after 9 11 the progressives are you know out there horrified by all the laws passed after 9-11 and the surveillance and the FBI is bad. I get they're targeting minorities. What are they doing? This is horrible. And then now the left is like, we love the FBI. They're the best. Surveil us all you want. And it's like, <laughs> what? Like, I don't, this doesn't make sense to me. Like, it's just. They're it, not I, the best, but yes, they do say that. It's like they got their own pit bull. And so it's like, well, this is our pit bull. Our pit bull is hurting people that we want them to hurt. And here's the thing. It's still a lion and the lion's appetite oh, and it's going to go back at some point. Right. So like maybe no matter what your political persuasions are, we should have constrained agencies that, you know, that, that like, I don't, aren't political, but you know, that, that, that aren't moved. That was the goal, way. right? Unfortunately you had it. I mean, it was conceived in uh, politicization and, and all the Intel things on there. Are you familiar with a, a guy named Trevor Aronson? Did we talk about him at all? No, we didn't talk about him. So, so he's a, a reporter at The Intercept, and mm -hmm. uh, he's been writing even recently. And this is something that should bother people that are progressive, liberal, leftist, take your pick, um, and even centrist. And it certainly bothers me, and I'm on the right, generally speaking. Uh, the FBI was going into the racial justice pro. You know, I don't necessarily agree that there's a, a racial justice problem. I don't even know what the heck that means, to be fair. But I do think that there are some justice issues that go on in this country. And mm -hmm. there were some racial justice protests that happened in 2020 and 2021 right. in Colorado. And the mm -hmm. FBI was moving sources and undercovers yes. into them. And they were trying to get people to buy guns, which is the move. That's the move that they've been doing since 9-11. They used to do it to uh, what they call homegrown violent extremists. But in any ways, he's, he's put out a 10-part uh, podcast called The Alphabet Boys. He did a, a series of stories about this thing. So they've been targeting people on the left in the last few years, like in the last three years. And nobody seems to go like, oh, I'm appalled by all of the things that are wrong. Like, yeah. it, it shouldn't be a political issue. If if somebody sucks, they suck. And the, and the FBI sucks. They do a lot of terrible things like that. You don't know about it until it's exposed and somebody has to go out there and be a real journalist and, and, and look it up, so. And then you put yourself at risk. I mean, you put yourself at massive risk. Like, I feel that in some way or another, I'll probably be targeted my whole life because I've spoken out. You will too, Kyle, right? Like sure. it's- Thanks. But I mean, but you know, it's- you're 100% right. And like the, you know, it's like one thing I keep thinking about is the Proud Boys trial for January 6th. And like, we're not allowed to talk about January 6th, but um, I don't think it was a great day. I will say that. I think bad things happened that day. Um, we can all agree on that. But like, that's some sad. people can't, but I, but I can. I can definitely agree on that. There was clearly <laughs> some things that were really dumb and, and bad. Yeah. Um, but like what the Proud Boys did. They've been charged with crimes. They deserve their constitutional rights when they go to trial, right? And there's like no anger or outrage over what happened in those trials. And that stuns me because what I said to my progressive friends is like, there, if, if you need this example, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of black men in jail in America who were tried by all white juries who, you know, didn't get to put on their evidence, who didn't have effective counsel. And that bothers you. And like everybody just just put Black Panthers in there. 
instead yeah, of proud and, boys. Yeah. I mean, Not, like, and I don't think they're analogous, honestly, I think because there's black guys that are proud boys, whatever, but it's it's a political thing. So it the politics is the new race for some reason right now in the same way that, uh, in fact, did you, there was a survey I read that said in the 1960s, um, parents would have been appalled and likely to disown a child for dating or marrying someone of the opposite of another race. Yeah. And today it's, it's politics is the exact same <laughs> thing. Like they will literally, you're like, Oh, you, you married a Republican. Like you're not part of Thanksgiving anymore. And, yeah. and, and that's a real thing in this, in this America. And so anyway, so politics equals race for the sixties, yeah. the divisiveness is the same thing. But yeah, if you threw in black Panthers, let's say like yeah. your friends would be appalled. If they were like, oh, what they're going to do is they're going to just uh, skip them. They're going to leave them in, in jail and and uh, pretrial confinement for two years. And then they're going to try them for misdemeanors. Are you good with that? They would not be good with curious. that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just don't understand how we're in this place where we're like, well, if we don't like someone, take away their rights. Like, it's kind of mind boggling. Like, haven't we been fighting against this? If, if, if I'm still on, the, like, if you consider me still on the left, like, haven't we been fighting against this shit for 50 years? Like, isn't this what like people went to marches for? Isn't this what people laid down and died for? Like, Wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's just, and, and maybe it's, I've always, when I started practicing law, I was a first amendment lawyer, but I worked for corporations. So it was like a very interesting scenario. Um, but, but I, you know, when I wanted to be a first amendment lawyer, my mentor at the time, Floyd Abrams, um, who's Dan Abrams' father. I don't know if you, Dan Abrams is a journalist, but Floyd said to me, you know, if you're going to do this, you need to know that you may end up defending the KKK's First Amendment rights. Are you okay with that? And I was like, I mean, I, I wouldn't love to do that. But yes, they have First Amendment rights too, right? Like the First Amendment does not selectively apply to who we want it to on a Tuesday and who we want it to on a Friday. And that's all of our rights. And so it's just super disappointing that we're in this scenario where we feel differently. Is there a way that uh, that people that are more progressive can hear that message at all do you think it's so interesting because your your story i mean it resonates with me it resonates with phil it resonates with glenn beck mm -hmm. it resonates with a uh, tucker carlson who i think is actually probably more towards the middle and even on some of this stuff although he's gotten kind of more extreme but it's, it's it's resonating with people on the right and those were not your people for most of your life as you said you you raised funds for barack obama you were on the financial steering camp you know uh, uh committees with his stuff so how how do other people that are that believe the way you did how, like if you're not a crossover example then what the heck does i don't know i mean i don't know and then this is something that like i will grapple with for the rest of my life you know i think i think about this a lot um i don't i don't know i don't know why we are where we are in america it's a terrible place to be it's horrifying it's not going to help any of us like we're not in a good place because we can't no, talk to each other. That's not to say there's not people on the right. Because I've seen people who have said things was like, well, she voted for this. Good for her. Like now she's reaping what she what she sows. And it's like, no, she's a mom. And she's yeah. got kids. What the hell are you talking about? Like, are you out of your minds? That's a terrible position. There's, there's no, you can't be a Christian, which so many people uh, on the conservative right are. And then also say really, really nasty, vindictive things for someone who says, look, I got this problem. Can you help? Yeah, it, I mean, it's, and, a, and, it's a crazy position for me to imagine people coming from. Yeah, and I think like I also think like what happened to my family. So this actually started under Trump's DOJ, but like Trump didn't know about it, right? He had nothing to do with it. Like it's a, it's a line, it's line prosecutors. Those are your rank and file prosecutors in a in a judicial district, right? Like there's no, I don't think there was anything political to this. I think, and this is why I go back to like the oligarchy and why this matters so much. This was a corporation weaponizing DOJ. So it's not just that politicians can weaponize DOJ. Corporations can, and they do. 
right? That's in right. Corporate, in, and that's in the corporate corporation's influence over politicians as well. And that is, I think, like the bigger, broader picture. Um, and again, these corporations don't have a political ideology they, other than like making money. All they want to do is make money. They'll play either side as needed. They'll play either side. They don't give a shit. Sorry to curse, but they, they don't care. They don't care, right? Like they just want to- I think you're entitled them. to it at this point. I don't know. Yeah, they want to make money. And so, you know, I don't even like, and that's part of the issue for me. It's like, I don't think this is political. And yet the story of it has become very political. And that's really interesting to me. And I don't get it. No, it's it's, it's shocking because mm-hmm. it's not a political story. Right. It's it's all about money. And that's what I always tell people too. And and you, I know you're experiencing it, but it's like the, the, the reasons why people are corrupted are the reasons why people have always been corrupted. Yeah. It's money, it's power. Sometimes it's sex, but generally speaking, those are just acts best, you know, as an, as, uh, an aspect of one of those two things too, in a lot of ways, because it's showing money or power. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're in this like weird struggle with these people who had all the money and had all the power and they're not winning. And they're like, what do we do? <laughs> you know, and you're like, I don't, I don't even know what they're, I think I, I think I have an idea of what I think they'll do. Like, I really believe that Amazon will go back to the department of justice again and try to get them to do what Amazon failed at doing. And I have a theory of why I think they'll do that now is, you know, Amazon was internally led by a lawyer. This whole thing was led by a lawyer named Dennis Wallace. And he hired this law firm Gibson Dunn and Amazon hired them to secure criminal charges, right? Because they sought criminal charges for months and months and months before they bothered to file a lawsuit. Like criminal charges is what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And that's the return that they sought on their investment. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, you know what? So Gibson Dunn, Amazon's one of their biggest clients and they want to keep their client. And they could say, okay, maybe we didn't win in the civil court, but we got you these criminal charges. Now, if the prosecutors mess it up, that's on them. We got you what you wanted, right? So they're like, we did our job. We got the criminal charges. And I'm just kind of terrified that they're going to go and keep presenting these like bizarre facts that don't make sense and convince prosecutors to do something and then let prosecutors take the fall, you know, which is sad, but like that would allow Gibson Dunn to save face. And it's a yeah, plausible deniability, saving face, all that. You know, we, we did the right thing, but uh, we can't. We we can only throw the throw the touchdown pass. We can't run it into the end zone for you. That kind of deal, right? Yeah, it's just like I'm like, and this is my life. This little chess game that these lawyers are playing. Right. In the meantime, you're spending your money. They're spending our money, and also our money that came in through huge government contracts. So Amazon's just weaponized against the people of this country. In a way, what what other oligarchs do you see that probably are operating the same way? There's got to be a couple other ones that are. Um, I mean, I think that Mark Zuckerberg has a ton of influence. Like if you look at the Restrict Act, you know, that is that is Zuckerberg's um, baby. That's his right? ability to, to crush competition. Right. Probably, probably Twitter right now. Everyone keeps saying it's about TikTok, but I've, I suspect it's probably not about what they said, just because I don't believe anything any of the, the pitches come at. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I think Zuckerberg is a good example. Um, I think, you know, although Rupert Murdoch is not American, he has had a massive influence on our culture through media and in politicians, et cetera. And so I think that he's someone else with a lot of different power. Um, yeah. You think about Bill Gates, he's out there doing his thing. Yeah. He's like low key oligarch, (laughs) but like, you know, but he's out there, like he, he does a lot. Um, 
he does a lot around dealing, you know, in health and dealing with farming, you know, that we right. don't even, why, why, why no is that guy? He has the least outdoors, the least healthy looking kind of weird. He was, he was weird. Even when he started Microsoft, like it was always the, like the nerds take it back kind of thing. And now he's yeah. like, the, he, it's like, you can't wear a sweater and go to a farm, bro. I don't know what your deal is, but it looks yeah. really, really weird. It's in Congress. A lot about Bill Gates that we don't know. <laughs> That's my take on Bill Gates. There's just a lot that we don't know. Um, I'm not sure I want to either. Yeah. I don't think I would be better off. I don't think my, I would feel better about anything if I knew more about Bill Gates. That's probably right. Just let it go. <laughs> <laughs> just less Bill Gates everywhere would be great. <laughs> yeah. But I think that, you know, it's, I think we'll just keep seeing more and more of um, what billionaires can do to impact our politics and policy. Yeah, indeed. Were you one of the uh, Were you one of the people on the left that was, uh, you know, shrieking about the the Koch brothers? Uh, I don't know. What, I don't know what you would even call. It. Like they were the demon. They were the boogeyman for a while, right? Yeah, they really. My I mean, father in law loves talking about the Koch brothers. He he hasn't moved on from those talking points, whatever they were. And it's really funny. And I'm like, who, who guy? The early two thousands called and. Yeah. <laughs> they like their they like their. Sweater I don't back. know who the I don't know who the big the new boogeyman is for the left, but. Uh, but that was obviously one for a while. You know, I think, yes, I was um, not a fan of the Koch brothers. And I think it's part of, I think it ha like now I realize, and I think this is really important for us all to realize that there are Koch brothers on the left, right? Like th they exist on the left. These people exist on the left and the right. And they are pouring millions of dollars into the causes they want to sponsor and the politicians they want to sponsor. Mm -hmm. And that's our system. Right. We're just going right. to use that terminology from here on out. We're just going to assume that other people understand that they need a, a like a mylar wrap. Hmm. For the, They're your for brand sponsors. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's, like it's your brand sponsor. Um, so, you know, like it's it, they're on both sides and it's bad on both sides. It's the system that is the problem, not the people necessarily. So if that makes sense, right? Like, I, I wish we had a system where you could. This, this is the 80s and the 90s that we grew up in. It's like the man is the problem. It's the mm -hmm. system. Yeah, you got to yeah. fight. You got to fight the power. You got to fight the system. And then for some reason, people on the left right now is like, we love the system. Oppress us a bunch. I don't get it. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, yeah, it's, I don't. I don't. How did they, how did they stop being? I, I grew up where punk rock was like, you tell the man to go screw himself. That was like the whole point. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, is like now that the left is like, great, we're cool with the security state and everything. Like things aren't OK for the left at all. No. Right? Like, if you look at, if you look at, oh, sorry, one second. I, what was I going to say? What was I saying? You were talking about people on the left are not okay. Oh yeah. Okay. So people on the left are not okay because like, if you look at, you know, the, like are the, if you look at all of the indicators that the progressives are trying to work toward, like things are not getting better. And so the system is not helping you. And you've just said, okay, fine. Why? It doesn't make any sense. No, it's like Helsinki syndrome. Yeah, I don't understand. I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. So, but but I will say, and you know this, Kyle, Phil, like it's really hard to question the system. It's really hard to fight the system. It's really easy to be like, whatever, I'll take home my paycheck and just fine. We'll be okay. You know, like it, the other, yeah. Swallowing the pill is not fun. Oh, I don't like that image at all. I don't want to swallow the pill. Yeah, you know, if you look I, at like I want to fight. I, here's the funny thing, and then you and I have the same instincts on this, and I don't 
it doesn't matter that we came from different political leans on it. Although I was not particularly political for a long, long time, probably most of my life. I didn't care either way. Um, but, uh, you know, I just have an instinct of what's right and wrong. And I think you do too. And that's, and it, and it's not right to plead a crimes you didn't commit. No, that's like a really simple thing. That's what we tell our kids. You just yeah. tell the truth and it'll be okay. It, it, ne it won't necessarily be okay. It turns out as we are demonstrating, and I'm sure your kids do the same thing where they, uh, they brief strangers on your scenario in weird ways. It's like, oh yeah, we live in Ohio now because dad got accused of a crime by an oligarch or whatever, I whatever mean, things that they've gleaned from your conversation. Oh, yeah. I mean, my, my five-year-old who's in pre-K, her teacher the other day was like, so Merritt said like Amazon is a monster and it's okay, but like maybe... No, it is. You know, like like she was like, maybe she needs to understand why. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Oops. You know, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't even apologize for that. It's like you need to understand why. That's what I would and so tell. when I took her home, I said to her, I go, you know, Merritt, Amazon is not a monster. Amazon is a logo. It's the people that work there that are doing <laughs> this to our family that we have an issue with. And their names are, and I take off their names because I mean that's what like I'm gonna, you know, I'm not I'm not gonna let that's, I think it's part of the reason I've made a lot of people very angry is I use their names. Yeah, that's what somebody like, said to me. I, I get I get this thing. They go, they don't like you because you name names. They no, everybody wants to be anonymous. Mm. Everybody wants to do evil and have nobody know their name. But they don't let you not use your name too, right? Like Amazon. They're gonna name you. Yeah, they name my husband. And so I'm, you know, it's also, yeah. And I just, I refuse to let my children believe that corporations are humans. Corporations are not humans, despite what the law says or anything, you know, that they're, they're, it's just a brand and it's human beings who wake up every single day and make this decision every single day. As far as I am concerned, Amazon's general counsel, David Zapolsky, who knows me personally has shaken my hand, has looked me in the eye every day. David Zapolsky wakes up and hunts my family. Yeah. That's what it feels like, whether he thinks about it. And here's the thing that, that I also think is really gross. And I and I I can't remember who told me this. Maybe Phil told me this. Phil, this might have been a you, but you um you you experience things differently because it's attacking your family and you're never not with your family. This is their job. They wake up, they, they go to it, they hunt your family, they make you uncomfortable in your own home, in your own skin. You worry about whether or not they're gonna come and arrest your your husband in front of your children. Yeah. Then they, they clock out and then they go on a nice weekend and they go to a bar and have pub food. And then yeah. they think, well, then maybe we'll go to a winery this weekend. And in the meantime, you're thinking, if I go to a winery, are we going to get intercepted on the highway and arrested by the FBI for some sort of thing? Yeah. Right. I mean, cause, cause they can clock in and clock out and this is everything that you have. This is yeah. the only thing that you can do. The only thing. And then on it the never goes side, away. It doesn't ever go away. And on the flip side of it, I think like, you know, the miscalculation then, at least by Amazon and their lawyers, Dennis Wallace, and who did this, like, this is my family. This is our family. This isn't like a contract issue, right? This is all that we have. And so we will fight with all that we have. That's how it has to be. This is every, this is every eighties movie too, by the way, that's the other yeah. thing. I mean, we were actually primed for this fight. You and I both were. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and many other people, I think as well, like we're not alone in this. There are others that are having the same sort of struggles yeah. that um, they were primed for this fight because this is the way that all the movies were written. It was always the underdog was always going to come up with. It's like, yeah, you've got all the resources and you have all the capabilities, but this is everything to me. And this is just a thing to you mm -hmm. yeah. and I'm going to fight it like it's everything. And you can't, you know, 
there's no, there's no end to it for you. It's not like you could ever give up and be like, well, we'll just accept our fate. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Like I'm not, I can't do that. We would fight. I mean, cause talk to my husband's lawyers. Like if there is a, if there is a criminal indictment, we fight to trial. If we lose a trial, we appeal. And then we go to the Supreme court because this is like, I won't get into the details of it, but the, the crime they alleged my husband committed is like this very esoteric, rarely used federal statute that is very unsettled across different districts. Like there's two cases before the Supreme court on it right now. Like it's, it's a mess, but like, you know, and like, we've made like, and yes, we would take every single step of that way because we will, we wouldn't stop. And they, they accidentally got the 2% out of you that doesn't just roll over and, and accept their, their nonsense when they tried to save a uh, hundred million bucks. Yeah. And the 2% who was willing to go on social media and yell about it. <laughs> and, and had a message that was accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, because, because you do, you are a good messenger and that is a big piece of it too. And not everybody has the ability to be a good messenger. My wife would not handle this well. She wouldn't do what I do. She's already, we'd have this conversation all the time. She's like, I don't want to do that. Your husband wouldn't want to necessarily do this. It's not no, no, it's not. And I think, um, I think I'm, a, I've always told stories. I don't mean fake stories. Like I think stories are the heart of our lives. You know, the memories we have with our families, they're the hope we have for the future. They're where you see the underdog win. Everybody loves stories. It's the Bible, right? And so stories are really important. I think we've forgotten that with our short attention spans, which are with our willingness, willingness to just accept what we're told all the time. Um, but I think that people still deeply want stories and they want, they want the right people and the good guy to win too. That's it. That's exactly right. That's a wonderful place. I think to, to wrap this, um, we want the good guy to win. We want you to win. Uh, Phil and I both want you to win and we want you to keep us a prize. Hopefully, uh, you have another, you know, successful 12 weeks. Hopefully it, uh, it just keeps trending that way. It, things have been trending pretty well for us over here. Maybe, maybe we've reached a little turning point. So, um, I'm appreciative of your story. I'm appreciative of the way you tell it. And, uh, we're going to keep bringing you these stories here on the Kyle Serafin show folks. If you have not seen the first interview, if you decided to listen through this thing and not know the whole backstory, go back and listen to the more emotional and certainly less fun version, but a very important <laughs> story that Amy told us 12 weeks ago. I'll put the uh, the link in the description below. You have been listening to the Kyle Serafin show. We do really appreciate it. Fo uh, Phil, do you want to read us a, a five-star review you got hanging out there? Yeah, sure do. We got a nice one here from JD Chatterton who wrote great content. Tuned into this show after hearing Kyle's story on Dan Bongino was blown away by the interview episode with Sheriff Mark Kreider. I recommended that episode to multiple friends and colleagues and I never do that with other podcasts I listen to. Kyle, thank you for all your great content and analysis. With limited time in the day, your show wins out over other content I could be listening to. God bless and keep up the good fight. Thanks, JD. Yeah, that was a wonderful thought. And uh, we're going to talk to Sheriff Kreider again, actually. I just He reached out to me and said, we should record another podcast. And I was like, oh, okay, let's do it. So we'll see what uh, what's going on with Mr. Mark Kreider. Um, folks, you've been listening to our show. We do appreciate it. Please share it. Please uh, like it, subscribe. If you throw a comment down in the Rumble section, uh, I will, in fact, respond to most of them. I do get a fun bunch of you all, uh, especially when you correct me on all my minor flaws, like saying things like Department of Jesuits, or if I give you the wrong date, which happens sometimes too. I do appreciate the corrections because I don't even know what I'm doing half the time here. This one uh, is going to go down as one of the more hopeful episodes we've done. We really appreciate it, Amy. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing that story. Thank you for having me, Kyle. Thanks, Phil. All right, folks, and on Wednesday, and we hope that you have a good start to this uh, very enthusiastic week with, the, with this hopeful message. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. 
be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.